now we are going to go on to our in-depth coverage of the UN Conference on the Environment, known as COP27. This, as we all know, the world, the planet, uh, in a very serious uh, crisis, a climate crisis. And there are a lot of questions about whether governments are taking it seriously or not. A lot of controversial issues happening at COP27, but we're going to be discussing all of this with our guests. We're going to start with our weekly Earth Watch guest, and I'd like to welcome Dr. Shannon Gibson, who teaches courses and conducts research on global environmental politics, global public health, social movements and social justice, and community-based research. She received her PhD in international studies from the University of Miami. As a participant action researcher, she focuses on the role of disruptive politics and social movements in climate and health governance. She also works to engage students in active and experimental learning by teaching abroad from her research travel, such as the UN Climate Talks in Paris and Bonn and more. So Dr. Shannon Gibson, we're very happy that you're able to join us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us, what is your role right now in COP27, if any? You're monitoring it closely. Tell us how you're doing that and why. Yes, I'm an accredited observer with the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change through the Global Justice Ecology Project. And so even though we're not in Egypt because there were so many barriers to actually getting there, I am observing the talks with a group of USC students from the Wrigley Institute at Catalina Island. So we are staying up quite late at night due to the time change, starting watching the talks and the interventions and the plenary sessions, you know, around 11 p.m. Pacific time and following them until 6, 7 a.m. So uh, trying to closely track what's happening with the treaty developments, as well as the role that civil society and climate justice activists are playing at the COP itself. Right. And, and perhaps you could tell us a bit about that, because we're not hearing a lot in the news that's being reported out about what's happening with climate justice activists and particularly your work that focuses on disruptive politics and social movements and climate change. Tell us what you know about what climate activists, what they've actually managed to do there, given all of the restrictions around security and protests, etc. What would be helpful for our listeners to know? Yeah, the first thing I would point out is that it has been quite difficult for the climate justice movement to effectively participate in this COP compared to previous COPs. I think Going into this with it being in Egypt, you know, and the geopolitical context there, we were expecting that, but we've been met with some challenges that we weren't necessarily expecting. So even before getting to Egypt, a lot of civil society groups faced issues with having their hotel reservations canceled. Then when trying to rebook, were charged two, three, four times the rates that they were originally quoted. Then for those people who have actually made it to Sharm el-Sheikh, the welcoming and, and the, the space there has not been that hospitable. We're hearing reports of lack of water, lack of Wi-Fi. It's very difficult to navigate the space. There are language barriers. 
not enough volunteers to direct people. And so I've spoken to several that are there in the conference center who feel like those of us who are observing from the outside have a better read on the developments because they simply can't make it to meetings in time. Or if they get there, there aren't seats, there aren't headsets for language translation. So there's just been a lot of stumbling blocks for them to effectively engage. That being said. Yeah, Dr. Gibson, let me ask you this though. Because, you know, where does the blame lie for this in terms of the lack of water, headsets, et cetera? I mean, it is a U.N. conference. So it seems to me as though the U.N. apparatus, the U.N. itself uh, holds some responsibility or should be accountable to some of this. I know there's a lot of finger pointing and rightfully so likely at the government of Egypt. And there have been protests around their position, including on political prisoners, etc. But where does the fault lay for this, for these kinds of issues people are having? I think that it's equally shared between the United Nations as well as the host of the COP. So since 2009, when when talks fell apart in Copenhagen, the United Nations really has been tightening the amount of access that civil society has in terms of the amount of space, the amount of badges, the rules around performing protest or actions inside the COP. But when you look at the local context, more of the logistical issues, you know, the transportation between the blue zone, which is the negotiation space, and the green zone, which is where civil society is, or providing water and headsets, I think a lot of those finer details are definitely something that the the host country is uh, in charge of. Right, yeah. And whether or not they have the resources and just didn't bother to do it or what. But given those challenges, though, Dr. Shannon Gibson, have civil society campaigners, climate justice activists been able to have an impact to make their presence felt? And if so, how? Yes, definitely. I think the one thing that climate justice activists have really really been hammering down on is this issue of funding for loss and damages. This was a somewhat controversial topic that was introduced a few years ago. We were hoping for a decision on it last year at COP26 in Glasgow, but they sort of punted it to this year. And we've heard certain governments, the United States, other developed countries within the European Union, really trying to say that they absolutely refuse to be held liable for compensation for current loss and damage related to climate change in developing countries. And it seems like the G77 or the group of developing countries with support from climate justice advocates are not letting this issue go and really pushing for a solid decision to implement a funding mechanism around this, uh, hopefully in the next couple of days. Right. Well, we know that there are some governments, particularly governments of the global south, that are pressing on this issue of loss and damages. Um, Specifically, are you saying that uh, climate justice activists have been engaged uh, with those governments uh, that are pushing it? Um, Have have any protests at all, uh, you know, gotten through? Um, any voices from the climate justice community speaking on official platforms? Or how has that worked in terms of the impact of climate justice activists on the discussion that's actually happening at COP, including on the issue of loss and damages, Dr. Gibson? 
I think the climate justice activists have been really strategic this year in combining both insider and outsider tactics to support their narratives around loss and damage. So for example, we've seen several protests outside of the climate negotiations, which delegates have to walk past daily in order to get to their meetings, to get to their closed room negotiations. And then simultaneously, we have activists with the Climate Action Network, the Campaign to Demand Climate Justice, that are submitting draft text, that are proposing interventions about what that language should look like. And not only are they working together with civil society, but they are also working closely to inform the positions of some of our developing countries, our low-lying island nations. Um, and so using that insider-outsider tactic, they're kind of putting a, a full court press, if you will, to really make sure that loss and damage doesn't get abandoned as it did last year. Yeah, and you know, Dr. Shannon Gibson, I mean, we have discussed on Sojourner Truth, you know, we regularly cover environmental issues. We regularly cover in particular, but not only um, the indigenous um, struggles and indigenous nations that have been so much at the forefront of uh, these uh, climate justice issues. But um, in the past, we have discussed that there is a kind of a power relation between the climate justice activists that are more community grassroots based and the larger um, I suppose, uh, climate justice um, organizations, the NGOs, you know, the large um, uh, non-governmental organizations. And I'm wondering how that divide is being balanced here. I mean, are you finding that the, the bigger, um, larger, you know, funded non-governmental organizations are working um, with, or, you know, networks like climate action network that I assume would be more of the, the kind that Global Justice Ecology Project and others, indigenous organizations, et cetera, would be part of. So tell us a, a bit about that, just who's involved in Climate Action Network and what has been the relationship and the working relationship with some of the bigger, better known, I should say, non-governmental organizations that work on environmental issues, uh, Dr. Gibson. Yes, yeah, so this is something that we've seen within the quote unquote environmental movement. And often it's time it's hard to say that there might even be a singular environmental movement because there's so much diversity in sort of thinking about what is the cause of these problems and what the solution should be and then what tactics they use in order to get their point across. And so we have seen division between sort of the more institutionalized mega NGOs that tend to be headquartered in the United States and the European Union, compared to more frontline grassroots organizations that might embrace more of a justice rhetoric coming from indigenous um, people's organizations, communities of color from the global south. And so that, that division has certainly existed. Um, it really sort of hit a peak around 2013, which led to um, some splintering in the networks so that we have the Climate Action Network, which tends to house some of the bigger mega NGOs, and then um, the, the, the campaign to demand climate justice, um, taking in more of the, the justice-oriented groups, frontline organizations, et cetera. Uh, and what I've seen since 2013 is that these climate justice activists have really done a lot to pull the more institutionalized, reformist, mainstream groups to the justice framework um, and to really get them to think critically about things like carbon trading, 
offsetting and to support initiatives like loss and damage. So we're actually starting to see a bit more synergy and cooperation these days. Right. Well, that's that's really good to know. You're you're pulling them uh, more to the side of, of justice. And I imagine to the side of a lot of what the nations of the global south are you know, discussing. Um, just before you before you go, though, um, how are how are the students dealing? with? I mean, what what are some of the things that they are uh, learning? Because you are monitoring it, as you say, with a group of students uh, based at the um, an institute in Catalina Island in California. What concerns have they raised, uh, or any observations uh, from their perspective that you can share with us? Yeah, I think two observations stand out. The first is that to them, it's quite shocking that this is how the negotiation process goes, that that simultaneous discussion, some things are open, some things are closed. It's just so much to follow uh, as a single person, much less, you know, a smaller group. So it's easy to for them to see how, you know, for example, smaller developing countries or countries from the global south that don't have these delegations of three and 400 people, they can see how it's harder for them to engage in this process. And then the second thing that they always comment on is just the lack of a youth presence, right? With them being in their later teens and early 20s, to them it's quite jarring to see predominantly people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, or even older that are the ones that are managing these talks and deciding the fate of the future. And so I think for them, they they would like to see more youth presence. And if anything, it's motivation for them to hang in and to make sure that, that hopefully they can go in person in the future. Right. And finally, finally, too, what about the role of the United States and the positions that uh, the Biden administration is putting forward, John Kerry uh, being there on the ground? Any any thoughts on on the role that the U.S. is playing right now? Uh, it's it's hard to assess because on the one hand, in the U.S. context, Biden has come out with the Inflation Reduction Act and pledging to act on climate change. But it seems to be that that is a lot of talk and rhetoric when we get to the global level. And that when we look historically, that the U.S. still hasn't met the funding commitments that they made back in 2009 under the Obama administration. We're still pushing carbon markets and offsetting. Uh, John Kerry announced a new energy transition program that's also based heavily on these questionable market-based mechanisms. Um, They're drawing a hard line saying that the U.S. won't be responsible for liability and compensation of loss and damage. So it seems that the U.S. is, is talking one way about being supportive and multilateral and cooperative, but behind closed doors is drawing hard lines on certain aspects, especially when it comes to financial contributions. Well, I'll have to say I'm not surprised. I was um, part of the UN Women's Decade, and I remember at the conference, uh, the final decade conference in Beijing, China, uh, the United States delegation had one public position. I was working on the issue of valuing and measuring unwaged work done in the home on the land and in the community. 
and they had one public position supporting it. And but behind closed doors, they were negotiating the exact opposite position. Right? And we knew because there were people inside that were reporting uh, to us on the outside. So uh, I guess uh, some things uh, don't don't change. Just a final thought from you on the usefulness of these UN conferences, these cops. I mean, this is the 27th one. And looking at the headlines, um, it seems as though The Guardian is reporting that even the 1.5, which is a, a global temperature you know, measure, that even that may be in trouble. Do you think that these UN events are actually useful? I imagine they suck up an enormous amount of resources, Dr. Gibson. So the one thing that's good about them is that it puts sort of the global eye on all of these actors and there's some expectation that there will be progress. But in the case of international diplomacy and law, there's also nothing to stop backsliding. And unfortunately, whether it's the 1.5 target, funding commitments, other issues like even acknowledging the IPCC reports that came out uh, this year, we're seeing some backsliding and delay. So on the one hand, it is good to get all of these actors in the room and kind of put the pressure on them to make statements and to make commitments. But on the other, I do think we certainly need to be aware of the fact that there's a hefty carbon footprint that comes with tens of thousands of people flying to different countries every year for this. It's questionable whether or not we're making enough progress each year. So I think moving forward, if the UN were to maintain the hybrid access that they've established as a result of the pandemic, that can hopefully maybe blend a little bit of, of the best of both worlds. But even now, we're not sure if they're going to maintain the hybrid portal moving forward. Right. Thank you for that. And I have heard of some climate justice activists who I suppose maybe it was going back to 2013, don't even bother, you know, to show up at these conferences any any further. But, uh, you know, just as you're you're monitoring disruptive politics, social movements and climate, et cetera, what message, I mean, what next do you think the climate justice movement as a whole has to focus on? We know in the U.S. there has been a push for Biden to declare a climate emergency. I wonder what, what you think of that. But, you know, the, the message, at least we'll, I'll hear more from Tina further in the show, on the one hand, you have a little bit of hope because finally, at least the loss and damage just seems to be on the agenda, but we don't know how far that's going to go. But on the movement side, what do you think we need to be doing, not only in the United States, but just building that global movement? Dr. Gibson. I think really engaging with youth activists right now is crucial as someone who teaches at a college university, um, seeing our students are dealing legitimately with eco-depression, eco-anxiety. This is affecting their ability to, you know, complete school, to think about getting a job. It's actually taking a toll on their mental wellness, well-being, and psyche. And so I think in, engaging students in these more local grassroots organizations where they can see progress in person, because I think you're correct, the COP can be very depressing. You don't see a lot of huge concrete victories at this high level. And so really engaging youth activists in local 
local fights is really important and making sure that they keep that engaged movement going forward. And then also just incorporating sustainability into curriculum and really kind of showing students that no matter what you major in, at some point you're going to have to start dealing with issues of sustainability, whether it's business, economics, you know, politics, et cetera. Um, so I think that's sort of a, a big point of looking forward. Have you heard from the monitoring that you've done any discussion around natural, what's called natural farming or soil regeneration as critical also for dealing with the climate crisis? Have you heard any discussion on that at all or not really? I know that there has been a decision on agriculture that I believe encompasses some of those policies and others that look at nature-based solutions to climate change, but I'm not familiar with all the details of those. Right, right. Fair, fair enough. Well, on that note, we appreciate you, Dr. Shannon Gibson, for joining us. And we know there's still a few more days left for COP, so we're going to be continuing our coverage. And we also want to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. We partner with them weekly for our weekly Earth Minute and our weekly Earth Watch. So we want to thank them as well. Thank you, Dr. Gibson. Thank you.